Hey, welcome to the Life Church Green Bay podcast. It's our mission to lead the way in bringing the life giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We are so glad that you're here. If this is your first time joining us, would you connect with us? We want to do life with you, and there are so many ways we can do that from wherever you are in the world. You can get connected with us and other Jesus people in one of our Facebook groups by joining us for an online service every Sunday or connecting with people through life groups and pocket churches. To learn how to get connected and find your pocket, please go to lifechurchgreenbay.com. Again, so glad you're here with us today. Here's this week's message. Hey, hi, friends. Open your Bibles to the 40th Psalm. If you're not in a place where you have access to a traditional Bible, you can always open up the YouVersion app, also called the Bible app, to follow along with our scripture verses and all of our notes. Wherever you're watching from, know that you are loved by all of us here at Life Church, and that God loves you an awful lot, too. We're in the middle of a great sermon series called Time Tested Truths. I hope you're finding great meaning and understanding of these tent poles of our ongoing relationship and journey with God. Truths like family, humility, wisdom, and generosity. These aren't get-saved-quick tricks or shortcuts to heaven. These are the kind of truths we build our lives around, the kind of truths we tie our boats to. And that's what we need, isn't it? Something solid and immovable we can secure our boats to. You know, when I was a kid, we'd spend a week of practically every summer at a lodge up in Eagle River. And during that week, there was almost always one night where there would be like this super stormy, you know, crazy night, and it's dark and frightening. And so we'd huddle in our cabin and we'd play board games to pass the time. But as sure as I'm standing here, I can remember clearly the sound of all the fishing boats tied to the dock, just banging against the docks and straining against the lines. It was a frightening racket, a cacophony of noise that was just terrifying. In the morning, though, the lake would be like glass, smooth and still. The sun would poke up through some lingering clouds. The noise and the dark were gone, and a new day brought a new peace. And that's what these truths do. They get us through the storm and the noise and the fear and the dark. Well, today, I'd like to talk a little bit about one of those truths, joy, specifically in a message we're calling Joy Versus Despair. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for all that you are and the ways that you love us and the ways that you make it sometimes painfully clear that even then we still can't see it. So I pray, Lord, that you're with us during this time, that we can have our eyes open to you, our hearts open to you, our, our, our minds open to you so that we can absorb the good news of your message and your love. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You know, the life we live as followers of Jesus isn't meant to be a a cloistered one of quietly waiting to die so we get to go to heaven. Jesus specifically says that he came that we might have life and have it abundantly or to the full. He never said, I came that you might believe in me, and then you get one of those uh, paper numbers like at the deli counter, and then you stand in line patiently waiting for the trump to sound and be called up yonder. That's not what he said. We're supposed to make the most of every moment of every day we have here with the people we love and the neighbors we're meant to love, love and joy to the fullest. The joy we can draw from our relationship with Jesus as a child of God is like a superpower. The great English writer, thinker, and apologist G.K. Chesterton once wrote, joy is the great gigantic secret of the Christian. A secret superpower, joy. 
It's what gets us out of trouble and through difficulty. It's Batman's belt or Wonder Woman's lasso, Captain America's shield, or it's Michael Knight's Firebird kit. Here's what David has to say about the joy of the Lord and what it can do in the 40th Psalm. He lifted me out of the ditch, pulled me from the deep mud. He stood me up on a solid rock to make sure I wouldn't slip. He taught me how to sing the latest God song, a praise song to our God. More and more people are seeing this. They enter the mystery, abandoning themselves to God. The latest God song, I dig that. When I think of joyful God songs, I remember the Sunday school song, I've got that joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. I've got that joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart to stay. See, that's the thing. In order for the joy of the Lord to be our secret superpower, for it to be our strength, it's got to be rooted deep in our hearts, buried in the very core of us, part of our DNA. There's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is a reaction that I have to my circumstances. But there's other circumstances that will make me sad. Like, here's an example. Oreo most stuff cookies. Like, look at that amazing thing. Like, Oreo most stuff, that makes me super happy. On the other hand, Oreo thins, that makes me sad. I mean, just look at it. Like, that's, like, what, how is that, who would, who's even happy eating that? So, happy or sad? But these reactions, these feelings are fleeting. They come and go with the wind. I'm happy when the Packers win, but I'm sad when my favorite TV show ends in a cliffhanger. I'm happy when it's Friday. I'm sad when it's Monday. Most stuff, Oreo thins. But joy isn't a fleeting feeling. Joy is a decision I make. Joy isn't how I feel. Joy is who I am. It's not something I put on and take off like a jacket. It's written on my heart. It's like a tattoo on my heart. And I have joy because I have hope. And I have hope because I have Jesus. That's it. That's the message. Jesus equals hope and hope equals joy. What will I attempt to do? Who will I attempt to be if I know that I can't fail? Who would I love? How would I help? What would I risk? If I have a super secret superpower, I'd risk anything. I'd do anything. I'd do everything. That sounds an awful lot like having a life and living life abundantly and to the full, doesn't it? If I have joy, friends, Bad Packers games or bad days at work or Oreo thins won't throw me for a loop. They won't derail my life. Joy, which comes from hope, which comes from Jesus, strengthens me. It invigorates me. It enriches me. It enables me to withstand the bad circumstances, fleeting as they are. Because I know, like in Psalm 30, it says, joy comes in the morning. When you're a person of joy, sad things, they just bounce off you. But those happy things, somehow they soak in. Your joy brightens. But as happy is to joy, so sad is to despair. When we were talking about this series, my friend Pastor Sean said, joy versus despair is perfect for you, bro. I don't know another person who's more joyful than you. And I also don't know a person who's been through more times of despair than you. It's true. I mean, I've been kicked out, bankrupt, abandoned, repossessed, left behind, homeless, split open, cursed, and forsaken. If we were to look at the topography of my life, I suspect I've spent more time in the valleys than I have on the mountaintops. 
Despair was a frequent presence in my life because for much of my life, I chose despair. Despair was definitely more roommate for me than house guest. And here's the thing, because despair was often who I was, the fleeting feelings of sadness darkened my darkness. Sadness expanded despair's emptiness. The things that should have come and gone like the wind soaked me through and through. When you're a person of despair, happy things bounce off of you, but sad things, they soak in. Your desperation darkens. The Bible is chock full of characters and examples of men and women who were caught up in despair. Pastor Becky kicked off this series teaching about Job, who was like the poster boy for despair. But let me talk to you about three other Bible heroes who were consumed by despair. The first is Jeremiah. Jeremiah was born to a priestly family in ancient Israel, just in a, in a town just north of Jerusalem. He was called by Yahweh to prophesy in his early 20s, even though he didn't think he was qualified or old enough to do it. And Jeremiah's early messages to the people were condemnations of them for their false worship and their social injustice. With summons for them to repent, he was probably not very popular. And so Jeremiah struggled with his calling and comparing his life to the lives of those he was called to minister to. In his book, he says, you are right, O God, and you set things right. I can't argue with that, but I, I do have some questions. Why do bad people have it so good? Why do con artists make it big? You planted them and they put down roots and now they flourish and produce fruit. They talk as if they're old friends with you, but they could care less about you. Meanwhile, you know me inside and out, but you don't let me get away with a thing. God, make them pay for the way they live. Pay with their lives like sheep marked for slaughter. <laughs> Jeremiah's not happy. Jeremiah suffered from constant rejection by the people he loved and reached out to. God had called him to preach, yet he'd forbidden him to marry and have children. Jeremiah lived alone. He ministered alone. He was poor and ridiculed and rejected by his people. He lived in that every day. That despair was present every day, more a roommate than a house guest. So one time he wrote, may the day I was born be cursed. May the day my mother bore me never be blessed. May the man be cursed who brought the news to my father saying, it's a boy. <laughs> Yet he stayed faithful to continue the command of God to rebuke his own people. Jeremiah was tossed that way in this, finding himself imprisoned and captive, thrown into an abandoned cistern, and eventually stoned by his countrymen while exiled in Egypt. No wonder he wrote words like, Why, oh why, did I ever leave the womb? Life's been nothing but trouble and tears, and what's coming is more of the same. You know, I could write a book of the, the favorite things that my friend, Pastor Sonny, says. One of the all-time greats is her teaching on how comparison is the thief of joy. And we see that even in the great prophet Jeremiah, and he had that tendency. When we take our eyes off our blessing, we get lost in the curse of aimless jealousy. Another character is Naomi. You can find her story in the first few chapters of the book of Ruth. Naomi is married to Elimelech, and she has sons named Malone and Kilion. Now, while her boys were still young, the nation of Judah runs out of food. Everyone's scrambling on what to do. So Elimelech moves his wife and his boys to Moab from Bethlehem. When they get there, Elimelech dies. His sons marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Together they lived as a family in Moab for 10 years. And then, unexplicably, 
the sons die. Word comes that God has blessed Judah with food, so she packs up her daughters-in-law and begins the journey back to Bethlehem, back home. But as they're leaving, she feels bad that she's dragging Orpah and Ruth back to Judah with no promise for them, no possibility of husbands, no sure thing, no, you know, assurance that they're going to be okay. She tells them to go back, but neither want to. Naomi insists, Orpah relents, Ruth says, don't try to make me leave you and go back. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die. And there my body will be buried. I won't let anything except death separate you from me. If I do, may the Lord punish me greatly. So Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. When they get there, the town is all abuzz. Oh my gosh, Ruth, Naomi's back with Ruth, and it's been more than a decade. Can this possibly be the same Naomi? And then Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. The mighty one has made my life very bitter. I was full when I went away, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So why are you calling me Naomi? The Lord has made me suffer. The mighty one has brought trouble on me. Have you ever been so fed up with the world and what the world deals you that you want to crawl out of your skin and start a new life somewhere else, enter some kind of cosmic witness protection program? Naomi was so fed up with the hand that she was dealt, so full of despair that she changed her name altogether. The last one I want to talk to you about is David. We're introduced to David as he's the littlest dude in Saul's employ and how he's sent to face Saul's biggest opponent. David's victory, though, over Goliath and his increasing popularity causes Saul, his boss, to become violently jealous. So David has to hide in a cave to avoid assassination. Once he's king, he lets his passions and temptations get the better of him, and he commits adultery, adultery with Bathsheba, who then gets pregnant. To cover up his mistakes, David arranges to have Bathsheba's husband killed. Then the prophet, David's prophet, Nathan, calls David out. In the scripture, it says, when Nathan came to David, Nathan said, there was a, two men in a city. One man was rich, but the other was poor. The rich man had very many sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little female lamb he had brought. The poor man fed the lamb. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms. The lamb was like a daughter to this poor man. Then a traveler stopped to visit the rich man. The rich man wanted to give the food, give some food to the traveler, but he didn't want to take one of his own sheep or cattle to feed the traveler, so instead he took the lamb from the poor man. The rich man killed the lamb and cooked it for his visitor. David became very angry at the rich man. He said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this should die. He must pay for the lamb four times for doing such a thing. He had no mercy. Catch this. Then Nathan says to David, dude, you're the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I appoint you king of Israel. I saved you from Saul. I gave you his kingdom and his wives. I made you king of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you even more. So why did you ignore the Lord's command? Why did you do what he says is wrong? You killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and you took his wife to become your wife. Despair. David's son by Bathsheba dies. David failed to discipline his own sons. His, sons. his son Amnon committed the sin of rape and incest, and he was murdered by David's son Absalom. David's son Absalom led a rebellion in an attempt to usurp David's throne, and Absalom was eventually murdered. Like, David's life is falling apart. David ignored Joab's advice and God's command, and a deadly plague infected his kingdom. 
When David eventually wanted to build a house of God in Jerusalem, the temple, God refused him because he was a man of blood. No wonder he wrote songs like, God, my God, come and save me. These floods of trouble have risen higher and higher. The water is up to my neck. I'm sinking into the mud with no place to stand. I'm about to drown in the storm. I'm weary, exhausted with weeping. My throat is dry. My voice is gone. My eyes are swollen with sorrow. And I'm waiting for you, God, to come through for me. I can't even count all those who hate me for no reason. Pull me out of this mess. David is famously known and regarded as a man after God's own heart. You guys, as close as David seemed to be to God, as blessed as David was, he still, can, he still continuously found himself on the losing end of these bad decisions and the ugly side of the consequences. But here's what got David through, joy. As often as you can read in the Psalms of his desperation, you can read 10 more times the number of times that David writes about the joy that he finds of the Lord in his own heart. Because joy isn't how David feels about or what he feels about. It's about who David is. Trouble and sadness and bad decisions and consequences in the end bounce off of David. David had joy because he had hope. David had hope because he knew God. And he didn't just know of God. He knew, knew God. He adored God. He exalted God. He worshiped God. He sang God's songs. He danced before God. He did all of that out of joy. The joy of the Lord was David's strength. It can be your strength too. If you can choose to leave behind the darkness of despair. During an extended period of illness in his childhood years, the Scottish novelist Robert Louis Stevenson was found gazing out his window one evening at dusk. Fascinated by a sight that held his attention, finally his nurse inquired as to what he was looking at so intently, and he said, I'm watching a man punch holes in the darkness. It was a lamplighter at work that was, you know, lighting the gas lamps in his neighborhood for the oncoming night. And I just love that visual, don't you? As black as darkness can be, the whole thing changes when light erupts. In fact, you could say that darkness can't exist in the presence of light. Similarly, despair can't exist in the presence of joy. Let me leave you with four ways to poke holes in the darkness of despair. Number one, stop chasing happiness, start building joy. It's easy to chase and catch happiness because it's fleeting, it's always moving, it's, it's more easily caught. The thrill of a one night stay and the recklessness of a night of drinking, the numbness we can feel from narcotics or opioids, the splurge of online shopping, the satisfaction from overeating. The world that doesn't know Jesus tries to fill their lives with the pursuit of happiness, hoping that some of it might stick. But we know it won't. If your life is one of despair, we know that it's a worthless pursuit. Happiness will never stick. Happiness will always be fleeting. But when we focus on building joy, we're remaking our psyches and our spiritual makeup. It's no easy thing and it's no quick thing. There are muscles that have to be built. There are sometimes bones that have to be broken and reset. But from the very start, even when it's yet small, the light of joy brings warmth and clarity and consistency to our lives. Number two, see suffering as a gift. In James chapter, chapter one, it says, my brothers, you will have many kinds of troubles, but when these things happen, you should be very happy. You know that these things are testing your faith and this will give you patience. Let your patience show itself perfectly in what you do. Then you will be perfect and complete. You will have everything you need, everything you need. You will be perfect and complete. I love how James doesn't say your life will be perfect and complete. 
Your day might not be perfect and complete. Your job might not be perfect and complete, but you will be perfect and complete. We are made perfect and complete through our joy, which comes from hope, which comes from Jesus. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. And then in John, he says, I've told you this, that you will have the same joy that I have. I also want your joy to be complete. Jesus, who was forsaken by his village, harangued by his church, condemned by his government, killed for his truth. Jesus, who had every right to get lost in despair, had a joy unspeakable and full of glory and promises us that same complete joy. Number three, say no to Satan's lies and his measuring stick. We talk much here about how Satan is the prince of lies. He orchestrates despair in our lives and in our world by convincing us that his lies are true. Doubt, compassion, envy, pride. These are all the ways that Satan weaves a web that's easy for us to get tangled in. He knows that he can keep us away from joy by convincing us that we'll find eternal satisfaction in the pursuit of feeling good for a fleeting moment. The math doesn't add up. But he convinces us that we deserve these moments, that we're entitled to those moments, that other people have those moments, so we should too. He has us chasing our tails, distracted from the truth we find in the pursuit of more Jesus. We can't build joy by chasing happiness, but happy things are always found in a joyful life. We can't make it ourselves. It's a gift. Here's what it says in Paul's second letter to his friends in Corinth. He says, treasure is kept in clay jars. In the same way, we have the treasure of the good news in these earthly bodies of ours. That shows that the mighty power of the good news comes from God. It doesn't come from us. We are pushed hard from all sides, but we are not beaten down. We are bewildered, but that doesn't make us lose hope. Others make us suffer, but God does not desert us. We are knocked down, but we are not knocked out. Come on. Number four. Switch to the long game. Despair makes us short-sighted. Without joy, we tend to become fixated on any trouble we're in. And worse, we're always looking for the trouble that's around the corner. When we fixate on our troubles and our sad days and our disappointments, we hold them so close to our face, to our mind's eye, that it obliterates everything else. When we hold our trouble this close, it's all that we see, right? But like, geez, this Oreo isn't that big of a deal. But when we hold it close, it becomes disproportionate in size. It's a lie. And when we look for trouble around every corner, we're going to find it. And most times that trouble is a lie. When we look for the worst in everything, everything becomes the worst. In a recent episode of our podcast, a pastor and a rabbi walk into a bar. Pastor Sean was talking about Jeff Bezos and Amazon and how he learned that Amazon isn't technically profitable, how Bezos and his friends are in it for the long game, that by expanding their reach and in reinvesting the profits, they're not profiting in the now as much as they will be in the end. This is where Chesterton's idea that joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian comes into play. As Jesus' people, we are assured of a life everlasting in the kingdom of God, a forever of tomorrows in his presence. In the book of Revelation, it says, the one on the throne will pitch his tent there for them. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more scorching heat. The lamb on the throne will shepherd them, will lead them to spring waters of life, and God will wipe away every last tear from their eyes. That's our promise, forever. In the meantime, joy makes this life, temporary as it might be, not just tolerable, but full, full, bright, warm, shiny, a place where happy things happen and they make our joy brighter. Imagine living a life so bright and joyful that people wonder how you got to be that way and how they can get a piece of it too. 
that's the life we're called to. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me? I wonder, as you make your way through life, do you feel like you're walking in light with patches of shadow? Or do you feel like you're walking in darkness with a few holes of light punched through? In the topography of your life, are you spending more time in valleys than on mountaintops? Happy and sad things happen in all our lives. They don't dictate who we are unless we let them. We choose joy or we choose despair. For me, I've chosen joy, but I can only achieve joy because I have hope. And I only have hope because I have Jesus. If you're watching today and you don't have joy or hope or Jesus, I'd like to pray a prayer with you real quick that can give you the Jesus part of that equation. If you don't know Jesus as your friend, Lord and Savior, you can invite him into your life today. Then starts a journey where you come to realize the hope that you have in him. And then hope punches a million holes in your darkness. And before you even notice, joy begins to replace despair in your life. Sad things will still happen, sure, but they tend to bounce off of joyful people. Happy things will happen, and in my experience, that'll make your joy brighter. So if that's you today, if you need to know Jesus, just repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm a sinner. Would you forgive me? Would you come into my life? Be my Lord, be my Savior, be my hope, be my joy. I give my life to you. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it in your heart, I'd like to welcome you to the family of God. The Bible tells us that God and Jesus and the Spirit and all the angels of heaven are rejoicing right now. We'd love to know about your decision today so we can walk alongside you on this journey. Please visit jesus.lifechurchgreenbay.com to let us know and we'll be in touch. But I'm not done. If you're watching today and you know Jesus, like you know know Jesus, but you still spend too much time in the shadows, if it feels like sad things happen and they stick to you, if you feel like it's easier to hang on to trouble than it is to hang on to hope, I'd like to pray for you too. God, please be with my friends, not just in this moment, but in every moment. Jesus, be a fence all around them. We know we can't avoid disappointments, but if we keep our eyes on our blessing, if we trust that there's no way that we can fail, if we know we're in it for the long game, we'll find hope in you. God, make your presence, your hope, and your joy known and felt in my friends. Remind them that they are children of the kingdom, that no weapon formed against them shall prosper, that they are more than a conqueror, let your joy be their strength. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We love you, friends. Hey, thanks for joining us this week. Did you know we have discussion questions for each message? You can download them and talk it over with your friends and family. Go to lifechurchgreenbay.com to download today.